Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 69. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today, at Caroline's request, we're going to be discussing a Whole Foods proposition in the neighborhood of Englewood, which is a suburb of Chicago. And Caroline, what sort of summary can you give the listeners? So this is an endeavor that was started over a year ago. So we're kind of late on the uptake here, but I still think it's a developing project and something that is still very worthwhile to talk about, which is the construction of a Whole Foods in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Chicago. It has been labeled a food desert, which means that beyond convenience stores and corner food marts, there's not much by way of access to healthy foods or food in general, really. And Whole Foods has taken it upon themselves to enter into this neighborhood, not only as a means for making money, but they also believe that they can actually regentrify and potentially even change the way people eat. So this goes along with a lot of underlying issues concerning racism as I said, access to food, which also is really tied into racism itself, and generally regentrifying the area so that Whole Foods not only maintains its reputation for not only healthy food, but also changing that so that it is accessible, meaning that food in their stores might be reduced to a slightly lower price, and yet at the same time still selling, for example, cage-free eggs as part of their philosophy and business model. So to start, I think it'd be fruitful to discuss the history of Englewood a little bit, as it is a food desert, but it wasn't always like that. So in the 1930s, Englewood was 99% white, in fact, and today it is 99% black. At one time, over 160,000 people lived there, and now 60,000 do. The demographics from Englewood's own governmental site says Englewood has about 5,000 households with a population of about 13,400, which seems crazy to me. And I don't think it's talking about the wider area of Englewood. It's probably just Englewood proper. Thus, a third of the households live below the poverty line and a quarter of adults are unemployed. In addition, crime rates are among the highest in the city. What this article from the Washington Post that goes into detail about this project does do is relate this project to that of one that Whole Foods has orchestrated in Detroit, which initially received a lot of backlash with people saying that Whole Foods is actually called Whole Paycheck and is largely associated with rich white people food. However, Whole Foods is really maintaining its principle that they have never shut down a store, and thus the store in Detroit has developed so that in the first 14 months of its opening, it had the highest food stamp use of any store in the region. This, to me, says that people do want access to food, even if it does carry the connotation of rich white food, because regardless, and I think this will hopefully change over time in the U.S., that stigma will shift so that rich white food can become just food and it is equally accessible to everyone. And that's how it will change. So, Kip, I love your thoughts. I think this is a really interesting project. I think it's in some ways empowering, in some ways disempowering, and we can go into that. Right. Well, my first reaction to the phrase white people food or rich white food is one of sadness because food shouldn't be associated with race. And I know that it is and I recognize why historically that has been the case. And it's sad to me and I know and acknowledge my whiteness and my privilege that things are the way they are. 
And I'm also reminded of the phrase people food when human beings refer to their pets. And I think that's an upsetting association that I might have because no one should be compared to animals in that way or feel that they aren't entitled to something because of their genetic predisposition. And that's really messed up for lack of a more eloquent phrase. And I wonder to what extent the black citizens of Anglewood would feel strange racial pressure to change an aspect of their identity in order to eat more healthy food, which is associated with whiteness, and to what extent they might sacrifice aspects of blackness, which I don't know, not being a black individual, but that must feel really uncomfortable knowing that on some level, your body demands healthier, more nutritious food, but your identity, your psychology might rage against something that says this food is coming from someone who believes that they are your superior or from a race that has established some agenda and rhetoric of being superior, which is of course false, but which has been nonetheless propagated by white America and white citizens around the globe. That's a strange conflict that I've never had to think about. I've never wondered where my food was coming from in a racial sense. And that itself shows ignorance and a detachment from food. I think also in a classist sense, I mean, if we're thinking about the food that people have access to living in a food desert like Englewood, which is largely fast food or food that you might find at a gas station like chips and yes, perhaps milk, but even then that might be the only source of calcium or protein in that store. And then we're thinking about the food that is associated with upper class which is basically anything. I mean, it's organic, it's fresh, it's also expensive. So even just in that vein of thinking about poor people food and rich people food, and then once you have that binary, it's associated with race in that way as well, even though at a much more, I think, underlying and hegemonic level. And I would also like to call upon the stereotypical phrase used in many well-fed families, especially by parents, that kids overseas or kids in Africa would kill to eat the food that you're wasting and how dare you waste your food. And so there is often this ideal of the other who can't eat the food that we eat. And let's be honest, I think in a privileged scenario, in a privileged society or in a privileged race, you don't often think about your food as a restricted or limited resource. And you do waste food because psychologically you don't think about its need in that way. It's simply a part of your life. And for many people in Englewood who might struggle to feed themselves, especially with the healthy food that Whole Foods wants to provide, of course, for profit, that life and its relationship to food is a very different one than you or I might know. And that to me is interesting. I would like to mention the nonprofit group Growing Home, which produces more than 30,000 pounds of produce a year and uses a once abandoned industrial lot that it bought from the city for a dollar. Exactly. Which shows the economic situation in Englewood. But Whole Foods has already donated $100,000 towards Growing Home and intends to work with them as a produce provider. And I think relationships like that are worth looking into. The irony, however, I find with this urban farm that is situated in Englewood is the fact that even if they produce 30,000 pounds of produce a year, that food is being sold in other parts of the city where it can be sold at a high price where people who will pay for it will buy it because it is so prized today to have organic fresh produce. And thus, there is some irony in this idea that people invest in neighborhoods like Englewood at such a low price because they can, but then they export their products elsewhere. 
hopefully when Whole Foods is constructed there, they're planning on using this urban farm as a source for local vegetables and therefore people will have more access to it. But there is that irony there about access to food. It's just at your fingertips, but you can't get it anyway. And of course, in the food desert that we've described of Englewood, when you don't have access to cheap food that is healthy and you don't have many financial resources, you will acquire and buy cheap food that is unhealthy, such as chips and soda, which I would like to point out are scientifically designed by those manufacturers to be addictive and to be craved by the body because they saturate these foods with flavors and fats that make them appealing to the human tongue and to the human body, although they are not healthy for us. And so that, as you said before the episode, is a form of structural violence, which if you could describe further, I would appreciate. So in brief, structural violence simply means that which constrains someone's choice. So this could be being born black. This could be being born a woman. This could be also the idea that you live in a neighborhood where in order to have access to a grocery store, And because of the constraints on your job and perhaps the amount of children you have or the idea that you live on food stamps, you have to take a bus or two buses or three buses to get those groceries. And then by the time all that is accomplished, you are significantly more disadvantaged health-wise in your job, in the workplace, perhaps as a parent to your child than someone who has direct access to that grocery store. And I think it's worth considering that currently our nation is more aware than it has been in the past because of media coverage of explicit acts of violence. But in many ways, this is just as crucial that the black population or any impoverished populations are deprived of that which is essential to stay alive, of course, healthy food. And it's worth being aware of. I would honestly argue in some ways that access to food is physical violence in a way. It is directly and immediately impinging on your health. And it's almost more sinister than direct acts of violence because if you attack me, I can see that there's an attacker. I can fight back potentially or I can at least call attention to the physical body that just brought harm upon me. But in the event of malnutrition or food deprivation, you can't point at one person and that makes it in a very terrifying way a lot more effective because you can't indicate one party or one individual as easily as more outward acts of violence, which is troubling. And that's what's so challenging, I think, about this Whole Foods project, because in one way, yes, it is empowering. It's potentially granting access to food to a population that really doesn't, especially not good, healthy food. At the same time, with food like this being so largely associated with whiteness, it is hegemonically, in a lot of ways, trying to make this black population more white That's hard to say, but I think it's kind of true. And hopefully, perhaps if this does succeed and lasts for many, many years to come, Whole Foods and other grocery stores like it and the food that it provides, perhaps that connotation with whiteness will change because access will be so universal, at least in the U.S., which now that I'm hearing myself say this sounds like sort of a utopian idea. 
I'm glad you bring up access because the community itself wants access to Whole Foods as a place of employment. And Christopher Murray, executive director of the Washburn Culinary and Hospitality Institute at Chicago's Kennedy King College, is hoping that Whole Foods will employ some of his students. Likewise, Whole Foods is planning to use Washburn and its vast classroom kitchens to hold classes in cooking, nutrition, and shopping on a budget. It plans to start a year out from the store's opening, although it's worth noting as this article mentions, this too will be a delicate exercise. Whole Foods teaches people how to shop at Whole Foods. And I think on a marketing and advertising level, that's brilliant. And that's what most companies want to do because they want you to shop at their stores, giving them profit, giving them revenue and allowing them to stay in business. But I would hope, maybe optimistically so, that there are healthy practices which could be taught by a corporate entity like Whole Foods that would benefit people beyond where they shop. And if they move away from Englewood someday, and perhaps to a community where Whole Foods does not have a retail store, that they might still be able to employ the practices they learned in these classes to keep themselves healthy, to cook nutritious things for their families. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea. I think there certainly is a notion of corporate gain in all this, of course. I mean, Whole Foods is a nationwide corporation who is trying to make money even in setting up a store in a food desert. However, I do think, and perhaps this is just media, but I do think it is still important to note that, at least in the articles that we read for today's episode, Whole Foods co-chief executive, even if he is an executive, still believes that this will be one of the most meaningful things the company has done. There is some sort of humanitarian goal in placing Whole Foods in Englewood. It's not simply, I think, to just exploit people and make them buy their product, even though, of course, they want them to do that. Right. And pointing to your hesitation around the word exploitation, Whole Foods would reduce certain prices of certain products as they had done in Detroit. And that might help the community while slightly hurting Whole Foods in terms of profit margins. So I think you're absolutely right. Exactly. And talking about Price Point, Ed Peacher, the bishop at a church in Englewood, said Price Point was the number one, the earliest, the strongest, and the longest lasting argument, he says, of wary residents. And when you start contextualizing what Price Point meant in comparison to a $450 hair weave or $120 sneakers or $60 for a fifth of alcohol, then Price Point is not as strong of an argument as it initially was which I think is an important lesson for anyone dealing with any sort of finances because you have to contextualize how much your money is worth in a variety of settings to understand whether or not you are wasting money. And I also hope that the community in Englewood would be able to establish individual or family budgets to see if Whole Foods works for them. And if not, then capitalism indicates hopefully they would choose other alternatives and Whole Foods would take a loss on this, which would in many ways be problematic if they could have been a positive resource for the community. People aren't stupid. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. think that black people are stupid. And the idea that they don't understand that vegetables are good for you. I mean, as Ed Peacher says, good food ain't cheap and cheap food ain't good. And I appreciate that. It's not rocket science that 
fresh food, especially fresh vegetables, are better for you than chips. And that, once more, is structural violence in the belief that, especially the white belief that is imposed upon the black populations of the U.S., that this is their fault, that they know better, but they continue to eat unhealthily and are diabetic and are obese, and therefore they deserve it, or that this is their doing. And it just goes back to access. If people have access, I mean, as it's demonstrated in Detroit, with it being the store where food stamps are used the most in the city of Detroit, people know that that's a place to shop for good food and that they want good food. It's just a question of having access to it. You're absolutely correct in bringing up the racist stereotype that blacks don't have that knowledge. And I'm not saying that stereotype is conscious. I'm just saying that it does indeed exist, even if people aren't running around and screaming it to the hills. <laughs> I agree. And I think that's largely, again, structural violence in the lack of access to education, which is a product of racism. But I also contend that regardless of education, human beings can feel when food does good things for them. Your body reacts positively when you eat healthier foods. You gradually acclimate to it. You sleep more readily. You have more natural energy that doesn't burn or fizzle out. And I don't think it takes any education to know that. I would argue that a child could indicate on some level what foods were and were not healthy for them. And I think a lot of our knowledge of food has to change as a globe to solve problems like this. And hopefully situations like Englewood are positive examples that produce positive outcomes. I am hopeful as well. I think it all comes down to the way we think about food, but the way we also think about where our food comes from. And I think we've been saying access a lot in this episode. And I think I just want to reiterate or clarify that when I say access, it is not simply about having a grocery store in your neighborhood. It's about having the income, the time, the general ability to afford that food, and then also to reach that food in terms of distance, perhaps in that sense. And I'm hopeful that Whole Foods can be not only a more reasonable option in terms of availability of healthy food, but also that it can be affordable, potentially, in Englewood. And I would also really value, as always, other perspectives on this conversation and on the situation in Englewood and on Whole Foods and grocery stores in general, especially from listeners that I know live in urban areas, as well as I know we have black listeners who would have perspectives that you and I simply would not, which I would, of course, value. And as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So please, if you have any thoughts, we would love to hear them. Before we conclude the episode, are there any questions you have for the audience or things you would like their thoughts or feedback on? I think once more, Kip, in this episode, we've touched on a lot of different aspects of this multi-layered project, but also this multi-layered problem in a food desert like Inglewood. And from the audience, I would be curious to know, because we are both white students at a privileged liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere, which removes us further in a lot of ways, I would love to hear what we're missing and what we could possibly add to a discussion like this in the future. And so if you have any perspectives that we haven't touched upon and, of course, have missed, we would always value that feedback. And so if you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Where you can like our page and then receive weekly updates when we post an episode. 
And you can also connect with us via email, which is stridensaunter at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend you think might like it. And also subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach new audiences, of which we are very appreciative. And as always, thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.